Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hi, I'm Bill Bensley. A traveler loves a good flea market with the motto of buy first, think later. It's very likely that at some point on your travels, you've come across a hotel that was dreamed up by today's guest, as he has designed over 200 resorts and hotels in more than 30 countries. Bangkok-based architect Bill Bensley is famous for his highly imaginative, maximalist aesthetic, yet when it comes to the environment, he treads lightly with a sustainable design philosophy. Bill's deep love of nature grew from a childhood spent amongst the orange groves of California, and after graduating from Harvard in the 1980s, he set off to start his career in Southeast Asia. His world-renowned luxury hotels have been surprising and delighting design lovers for decades, and regularly feature in the glossy travel magazine hot lists. Most recently, Capella Ubud in Bali was named as Travel and Leisure's best hotel in the world for 2020. Bill's travel adventures will take you from the bustling streets of Bangkok to the endless expanse of Mongolia, and you better buckle up for this episode as we ascend to dizzying heights with a haphazard hot air balloon journey across Burma and a flight over Peru's mysterious Nazca lines that doesn't quite go to plan. Here's Bill Bensley. Where in the world are you at the moment, Bill? I'm sitting in my lovely home here in Bangkok. It's been my home for the last 36 years. We call Ban Botanica, and it's a small home, but we have around the house, we've got 17 different garden rooms, if you can imagine, and they're all different. So it's just completely lush, filled with tropical foliage, that kind of thing? Well, that's, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> it's a garden that is very, very hard to maintain. So we've got lots of people working on the garden all the time, and it's filled with orchids that we change, oh, at least once a month. It sounds like a jungle retreat in Bangkok, which is notoriously a sort of a a noisy and busy city. So it must be such a a nice place to spend your time. Well, it is. And the latest addition, the 17th room, is my painting room. Chiri Chai, my partner, uh, he bought for me a, a beautiful conservatory, a glass conservatory. And I'm spending a lot of time in there painting And it's especially nice because it's all glass, so I can see out to the various rooms from the atelier. I can imagine that your paintings are vivid and colourful and and quite amazing. They're strange, at least. (laughs) (laughs) I I tell you what, I'm not painting apples and pears. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So you've been based in Bangkok since the 1980s, so you're well and truly a local. For someone who hasn't visited Bangkok before, Can you describe a perfect day in the city? Well, if you can manage a day trip out of Bangkok, I would would venture out to Khao Yai Hill Station. And that Khao Yai is probably our best national park, and it's like Thailand was 100 years ago. Uh, Wild animals roam and elephants roam up there. There's waterfalls. There's great places to uh, to hike through. Oh, that sounds... Amazing. And then what about um, someone who wants to throw themselves into the hubbub of Bangkok? What should they be doing? Well, you know, it's my, my favorite place in the whole world uh, to shop is Chattachak Weekend Market. And 
It's, it's called the Sunday market, but actually it goes every single day. And our favorite time to go is on Wednesday and Thursday, because that's when the into all of the parking area turns into a plant market. And even if you don't like to buy plants, if you don't have room in your suitcase or whatever, it's a wonderful place to go just to look at the variations of, of plants that are available. And Thai people are the greatest uh, horticulturalists, I think, in the entire world. They've been breeding everything from aglaonema to, to dauphinbachia to philodendrons to, to all the different ficus. And we have the greatest variety that's available dirt cheap anywhere. So it's just fun to just to come and buy an armful of leaves and flowers and such to bring back to your hotel room. Oh, amazing. And the city itself is known for its fabulous speakeasy bars and cool places to go out. Where do you like to go for a drink? You know, Sukhumvit is filled up with speakeasies, but I really like there's one place called the, the Rabbit Hole. And then there's a, also the Sing Sing Theater, mm-hmm. S-I-N-G, Sing Sing Theater. And that's that's a great place for a dance and a and, and then make nice drinks and whatnot. But the place itself is, is spectacular. It's small uh, and and it's very, um, very friendly to every type of people. <laughs> okay. It's got an eclectic mix of people in there. Everyone's having a good time. Yeah. They go as late as they possibly can push it. Well, that sounds about right. I don't think anyone goes out in Bangkok expecting to head to bed at a reasonable hour. <laughs> To kick off the discussion around creativity and inspiration, I always ask my guests on the podcast whether there's a book, a film, a song, or a piece of art that has inspired you to travel somewhere. Yes, there has. Uh, Don't Stop the Carnival Mm -hmm. by Herman Wouk. And this book is about a, uh, a, a Jewish man from New York, Norman Paperman, he calls himself, and he he finds himself in the middle of the, the Caribbean in a fake island, and, and he's going to buy a hotel and renovate this hotel and live in paradise. And the story takes place over maybe six months, and it's about everything you can possibly go wrong with building a hotel. And it is the funniest book I've ever read about traveling into the Caribbean, and I I Totally recommend that. It's, it's, a, it's a belly laugh from start to finish. I think if anyone could recommend that book, it's you. You're certainly a, an expert in that field. So I'll definitely take that recommendation. That sounds so good. Let's, uh, let's wind the clocks back a little bit. Can you conjure up your childhood travel memories? I was born in California in 1959. And we had a, we had a, a farm, uh, an organic, organic uh, vegetable farm. And we had a, an orange grove and a walnut grove and chickens and ducks and uh, quail, hives of bees, I had rabbits. So basically, we were self-sufficient. So I think that's where I get my connection with the earth. And that's mm. very, very much where it comes from. What an idyllic childhood. And of course, California State is such a spectacular part of America. Not only does it have the beautiful weather, but you have so much natural beauty right on your doorstep. So presumably you traveled around California quite a lot as a child. Well, you betcha. My, my father, being very inventive, he was a prototype, prototype research mechanic for Garrett Air Research, and he actually made the toilet that went on the Gemini to the, to the moon. So, <laughs> that is the most random fact. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it, it, it was nothing for him in a couple of weekends or a few weekends at home. He made our, our own trailer. 
And every single summer, we would go all over Western United States. And when I was maybe nine years old, we went to Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And Yellowstone, if you know about it, has geysers and, and blue lakes and purple lakes and green lakes and bubbling pots of mud. And, and I thought that that was the strangest landscape I had ever seen. And it, it captured my imagination. It's like surreal for an adult to visit that park, but for a child, I can imagine your eyes wide open and and really getting in touch with nature as well. I remember catching a big stringer of of cutthroat trout. They had a big red mark underneath their gills. That's why they call them cutthroat. And that summer, I fell in love with, with traveling. And ever since then, I've been every single year, I've been traveling uh, to places like Australia and New Zealand and Argentina and Chile. And the best place in the whole world to travel to fish is in Mongolia. So the last seven years, I've been traveling to this wonderful place on the Delga River. And we travel into Ulaanbaatar, which is not easy to get to. Then we fly into a place called Murun, which is to the northwest. And then I travel from, from Murun by car. 10 hours on no road. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no road. Uh, and then from there, uh, we, we track over 300 kilometers. Uh, once we get to the Delga River, it's, it's mountainous, it's hilly. Uh, and the entire, during the wintertime, the entire stream freezes over with, with the exception of deep pockets. Wow. It sounds like you're so off grid and away from everything. Yeah, it sure is. I, we go by tent, mm-hmm. uh, by camel, by donkey, uh, and, we, and, and also by boat. And we, we don't leave anything behind. We take everything with us. So that's up near the Russian border, is it? Yes. In fact, some of the times you can actually see across to Russia. That's so cool. And are there locals there? Is there anyone else around? Are you meeting people? There are. You know, I can go for an entire month. One summer, we never saw one person. But sometimes the, the locals, they, they know that we're out there. And then they'll bring their cattle through or their, their goats through or so forth. And then they'll offer them up to us for us to, to dine on. <laughs> they'll bring some, <laughs> bring some lambs and whatnot. And then sometimes the, the cook and so forth will take them, take them up on their offer. And then so we have some... some uh, something really delicious to eat. So That's real farm-to-table situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, so true. But they, they're, they're the sweetest, sweetest people, of course. And, and when I think of Mongolia, so the image that I get in my mind is these yurts and the vast rugged expanses and the nomads of the Gobi Desert. Have you explored much of Mongolia or are you focused specifically on this Russian border? I've been all over Mongolia. I love that country. It's my favorite country. Uh, what's the, what's the fun parts to go is the east in the east parts they call the steppes the steppes of Mongolia. Mm-hmm. If you're traveling across a very flat desert, and the desert is almost red red to a tan, and there's a, a coolish breeze. So you would think a desert's going to be hot, but actually there's a cool breeze. And right throughout, as, as far as you can see, there's sculpted sandstone hills. And every piece of hill that you see is feel, looks like a sculpture. So that's why you get these, these ledges, the sleeping ledges, as I call them. But they feel like um, somebody's been out there with a, with a saw <laughs> and a hammer and a drill and, and carving the most beautiful images you can possibly 
possibly think of. And I've been out there on a, uh, on a camel track where we take about four or five camels and we go up there looking for the big horned ram. And I was out there for about eight days and I saw a ram for less than one second. At least I saw one. <laughs> so they're very <laughs> the, elusive. Very aloof. He stuck his head up, yeah. uh, saw me, and then then ran away. But that that's a beautiful part of the country. And do you sleep in the traditional yurts? Have you had an experience like that? In uh, caves. In caves? You've slept in caves? Yeah. Do the guys know where all these these wonderful sleeping ledges are? So there's caves that have uh, that are open ended, open both sides. So it's like a, sleeping under a stone arch. And it's like a natural uh, air conditioning as well. <laughs> that's a beautiful place. You really conjured up a place that's really remote and really romantic. And actually, when I was young, I saw this film called The Story of the Weeping Camel, which is a docudrama that's set in the Gobi Desert um, with a, a family of, of nomadic shepherds. And it follows the journey of this rare white camel that's been rejected by its mother after birth. And it's all about trying to reunite them. It's just so deeply moving and atmospheric that I've always wanted to visit Mongolia. And now you've just completely re-inspired me with your amazing descriptions. But to change the, the topic completely, I actually wanted to ask you about your most transformative travel experience. But I'm guessing that after graduating from um, Harvard in the 1980s, you took this great leap across the Pacific to Southeast Asia. And seeing that you've been in Bangkok for over 30 years and you've got another design atelier in Bali, I'm guessing that you've never looked back. Well, that's exactly right. In fact, I didn't go across the Pacific. I went from Boston to, to England and then from there traveled through Europe for about four months. And I had... I had all of $375 to travel for four months. <laughs> okay. So really on a shoestring. Really, really on a shoestring. And I bought a ticket on Airflot, which took me through Moscow and landed in Malaysia because I had a pending job in Singapore. And then the next day I, I got a job at a landscape architecture company, an American one. And the next following week, I was on a plane down to Bali to, to start designing hotels in, in Bali. And the first one was the Bali Hyatt. And I worked with a, a very famous um, uh, Australian landscape designer named Michael White or Madi Wajaya. And worked with him for a few years. And he, he taught me quite a lot. He was a really, really interesting, uh, dynamic and and uh, eccentric person. What a wonderful first foray into working in Southeast Asia. And how do you think that living and working in the region has shaped your design journey? Well, the reason that I, I really love working in, in Asia is because people still know how to use their hands. Um, and I gravitate to places like India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and of course, Indonesia, because, for example, the Thai people, they are great carpenters. In Indonesia, also great carpenters, but they know how to use ceramics and a multitude and, and, and also carved stone. Um, in Sri Lanka, the furniture that they make there is incredible. And so I have all around the world these collaborations over the past 40 years. I've built up these collaborations with various ateliers that I can, that I can use to combine to make very unusual 
uh, hotels. You're also, your designs are also known to connect with the sense of place. So how do you get in touch with the culture of the destination in which you're building the hotels? Well, the first thing I did when I, I knew that I, I, I fell in love with Bali and I fell in love with Indonesia, the first thing I did was I learned the language. Learned the languages, plural, in that um, the Balinese language is a different language than, than Indonesian. Um, I can speak and read and write in Indonesian, but I can speak enough Balinese to make people laugh. And then the, the third language I learned was the, the language of their vernacular architecture, which is fascinating. And the, what connects everything is the garden, is nature. And that's, that is a beautiful principle that I try to take into my resorts that we do. I've stayed at your Four Seasons um, in Koh Samui, and that hotel really blends so beautifully with the tropical greenery that tumbles down to the beach. And I heard that not a single one of the 856 or so coconut trees from the original... <laughs> plantation yeah that they were that none of them were cut down to build the hotel because of you you saved all those trees and ensured that you were building around the environment and not the other way around that's exactly right i built with what i call a minimal intervention and it it sounds so simple right but it's it's about making mother nature first putting mother nature in the first position so as an architect i designed our architecture small enough to be able to fit within the trees. And both that project and Capella Ubud, what I do is, I don't think any other architect does this, but I build every single unit in bamboo and string. I build the volume of that so I could see how the building that I want to build, how that's going to fit between the trees or, or if, or if there's trees coming up through the deck, I let the trees take take uh, take precedence. The branches seem to sort of sprout through the buildings in a way. Yes, many in many places, and that gives the you know the architecture a real sort of fantasy orientation. It's not about I'm the architect. I'm going to build here first, and everything else can move, and we'll plant everything back later. We didn't change a thing. We just lightly tiptoed onto the face of the earth with a small number of keys, but high yield. I think that is going to be the future, Edwina, of hospitality. The story you told me from your childhood and, and really getting an appreciation of the outdoors, that's clearly evolved into your passion for sustainability and conservation that's evidently integrated into all of the hotels you design. With your design philosophy, you have claimed in the past that luxury is dead. What do you mean by that? Huh. Well, you know, I've been in this business a long time and, and I see that you know, at one point there were beautiful hotels in the cities that changed their flowers every every few hours. And, you know, people were boasting about frette sheets and all of this, all of this luxury that I think is frivolous. Um, you know, it's nice to have, but but for me, real luxury is being in nature, being in a place where you are pushed to your boundaries. But you feel safe and you feel comfortable, but you feel to the edge of your comfort zone and, and where you're learning something new. That's what I think is the new luxury. That's, that's why I say the old luxury is dead. And, and especially, um, you know, in the times that come, we're going to want to be more in touch with, with Mother Nature. 
Mm, that's so true. And it's less about the thread count of the sheets and more about that experiential luxury, getting off grid, being able to disconnect and immerse yourself in nature. And I think that is definitely what people are looking for now. Sure. Bragging rights is another thing, right, that people are looking for when they're staying in these remote, unique locations. And it kind of brings to mind, you've built this beautiful hotel, Shintomani Wild, in the Cambodian rainforest, in the Cardamom Forest. That's right, the Cardamom National Forest in, the, in South Cambodia. Yeah, and so what I've heard from that property that you've built is that one of the bragging rights of, <laughs> of that property is the way that you arrive, that sense of arrival that you have. Can you tell, tell the listeners what it's like to arrive at that property? Well, we have a huge piece of property there, and, and once again, minimal impact. They're just on a very, very tiny little road that cuts through the, cuts through the jungle. It's not paved or anything, so you have to transfer your, from your vehicle um, into a 1968 U.S. Army um, Jeep. So you get in the back of this Jeep and you bump along bum, 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 mm-hmm. for, you know, for, for maybe 20 minutes, and then you go right up to the north end of the property, and then in front of you is this tower. This tower goes way up into the sky, 10 stories high, and you're asked, okay, can you please step out. You know, there's a cocktail at the top there waiting for you. So we get everyone up at the top and then they notice that there's a string, two wire cables that go right to the west about 500 meters. And then you're asked to zip line into the camp. That's the only way to get there. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, 99% of the people that come, they get into it. They do it. They have, you know, the little cocktail and and we zip line them across this giant waterfall, this three stories high. It's raging with water right today as we speak. So that the, the amount of water that's flowing over is creating this really cool mist. And it blows into your face and it blows you as you're growing because I've got the zip line going right through the face of it. So you, you go right through the mist of this, of this waterfall. And then down below is, is uh, just white water and white water tumbles over these huge rocks. And then they walk across to the other side of the river, which is huge. And then we uh, through another series of cable bridges, and then they zip line back across the river into what we call the landing zone. And there are this giant cocktails waiting for you. So people just love that uh, sense of arrival. And, and it's, a, it's a most probably the most unique experience to arrive at a resort anywhere in the world. Oh, my gosh. Southeast Asia's longest zip line. And it's wonderful. That is crazy and wild and could only come from Bill Bensley's imagination. You really <laughs> do create magic with your hotels. It's a magical place. And then the bar itself is filled with objects that I've been collecting for the last 10 years from all over the world, from a, you know, from a carousel horse to, to silver monkeys to you know, drinking games. And I've got probably 500 antique books in there and you can occupy yourself for a full day. It does remind me of that sense of arrival. You really created that so well at the Four Seasons Tented Camp uh, Golden Triangle as well. Just for the listeners, the Golden Triangle is the confluence of Thailand, Burma and Laos. And it's this mysterious land of teak tree forests and mist shrouded mountains and the mighty Mekong River. And the resort that you built evokes the atmosphere of the 19th century explorer's outpost that's been transported from Botswana 
and then going along on a long-tailed boat, navigating through this tea-coloured waterway of the Ruark River, past fishermen with their rattan fish traps and the buffalo are wading in the water. And then to the left of us, this enormous male elephant with his piercing pair of ivory tusks appeared out of nowhere through the tall grass on the riverbank and signalled our arrival with this thunderous trumpeting sound. It was just like, it was like it was out of a movie. (laughs) And then we we clambered onto this small dock and were whisked away in these 1975 vintage jeeps to these elevated tents amongst the treetops. And then we had to cross this this uh, suspension bridge that was straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. I mean, Bill, the properties that you create are just like magical wonderlands. Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah. That's why it's one of my favourite places to stay. And I just love a place that has a story and you really, really do create that. You know, what about you? What about on your travels? Have you ever felt a true sense of discovery or surprise on, on your adventures that you have? Well, I'll tell you, if you have a minute, I'll tell you about my favourite trip I've ever taken. Mm. And it was what, and it, there's only been one time that it ever happened. And we took a balloon from Pagan and we took it to Inlay Lake and we tr- started there and we traveled with the balloon. There was seven of us. So this is a hot air balloon traveling across Burma or Myanmar. Right. <gasps> yes. We traveled across Burma. First time it's ever happened. How long ago are we talking? This is about 10 years ago. Okay. And the wonderful thing about traveling with a hot air balloon is that you don't know where the hell you're going. You, you really don't. So you, you're, you get up there and you have to just follow the winds. And, and every time we touch down, it would be a brand new place and we'd just have to figure it out. We'd camp there or we'd go to a hotel nearby. We'd go to that, but otherwise we'd just camp there. And that taught me something really interesting about hospitality is that if you can um, give to your guests pleasant surprises that push them to the, their limits of, again, their comfort zone, they will remember that more than anything else. If you give them what they expect, then that's not nearly going to be as surprising, as surprising, as wonderful of experiences I had on the balloon crossing Burma. That's incredible that that inspired you. Can you describe what it's like to be up in that balloon? Set the scene for us. Well, every single day, we would start blowing up the balloon at five o'clock in the morning. And our balloon was maybe, maybe 60 meters tall, something like that. They're huge beasts. And you lay them all out on a field uh and like this big dead rubber carcass, you know, lying in the field. And as we're, as we begin to heat up the air, because you've got to fill this thing up very slowly, the villagers would come out and one by one, they would form this circle. And by the time that the balloon was blown up, the people were chest to chest, two, three rows deep, forming a perfect circle, 100 meters in diameter, of all of these beautiful Burmese people with the painted powders on their face, glowing, glowing smiles because they had never seen such a beast being blown up. They'd never seen anything like a hot air balloon. And we're all, we're all standing you know, next to the basket. We're getting in the basket. And then when it rises and takes off eventually at you know, 6 o'clock or 6.30, the roars of laughter was amazing from the people. <laughs> and they're all waving and cheering us on until we get to the next place. And, uh, and we had this wonderful pilot. And he would greet us in the morning. He says, hello, Mr. Bensley. 
would you like to go for a little cloud bouncing this morning? And I said, you know, his, his name is Ralph Renner. And I said, Ralph, what do you mean cloud bouncing? Well, we'll take it up above the clouds and then we'll let all the hot air out and we'll bounce off the, off the bottom cloud. And I said, isn't that dangerous? He said, no, this is how you do it. Uh, <laughs> and he had let it out and actually he'd, we'd go down really fast. It was scary. Mm. But the, the volume of the balloon would actually bounce off the top of the off the top of these cumulus clouds, what? and you would get this this little feeling of weightlessness for a little while, and it was so fun. It was just a, amazing. Then, then he would take us up above the clouds, and then we drift on. And I remember one time we he said we're coming down, and we were we had just missed the edge of the lake. We had these two rafts that were following us over. It's a huge lake, the Inlay Lake. We had these two rafts that were made specially for us in case we had to make a crash landing. And he said, sorry, guys, it's going to be really a, a, a terrible landing. So we had this crash landing, but we landed in a rice field. And as you know, rice field is filled with water. And so we were, we had, we had landed in about a half a meter or a meter of mud. <laughs> <laughs> and all seven of us were just, we just fell flat face in the mud. <laughs> And, and at that point, we're again another part of Burma, and none of none of them have seen a balloon before. And the entire village <laughs> was entirely scared like anything. Pigs jumped out of their pens, the dogs went nuts, the people came running like there was something wrong. And once again, we've got this, this circle of people, a circle of villagers that were the friendliest villagers, all laughing hysterically at these big Big uh, white people, <laughs> all covered in mud. They offered to come into our home and we'll wash you up. And that's what they did. And then we camped out on their, in their village. Oh, it was wonderful. But the element of surprise is so important in, when you're designing hospitality. That's where I'm taking the story. Phil, that is such a crazy story. I can just picture it now. Given given the current situation in Myanmar, I guess everybody has to come to their own conclusion um, as to whether they want to travel there. But say someone really wants to go, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, go to Began. Go on a, on a hot air balloon at 5 o'clock in the morning and you can fly over all of the temples. It's UNESCO site in Began. That is an amazing experience. And on the season of November to March, something like that, it's very misty. It's very foggy. It's right next to the to the river, and so that the the city, the old city of two two thousand fifteen hundred years ago, unveils itself very slowly and, and as the fog grows off. So that that creates sort of a very magical, um, theatrical feeling to it, and that's one of the one of the highlights of my life. Oh my gosh, I would love to do that. And obviously, Bill, you're such a creative and imaginative person. Is there a particular destination that really inspires you? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Uh, you know, I really love Kyoto. I'm uh, obsessed with the vernacular architecture of, 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 of Japan. And it, I find it very inspiring because it's... It's an art form that I think I will never master. Mm. The the perfectionism, the attention to detail, and the masterful way that they go about mastering their crafts, 
it might seem like a bit of a cliche, but I always think of Jiro from the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi because he's this 85-year-old man who has three Michelin stars under his belt, yet he still feels like he hasn't achieved perfection in sushi making. And that sort of lifelong pursuit of excellence, I just really admire it. And I'm wondering, when you were in Kyoto, did you find yourself able to um, embrace or or learn about that aspect of Japanese culture? Well, I've had a few jobs in Japan uh, designing hotels there, but I, I worked with one landscape architect and he was, um, we were probably both 55 or 55 at the time. And he told me that he was still a, uh, he was still in his internship because his father and his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather were all landscape architects. They were all designers. And his father was something in his 70s or 80s. And he was, he was the guy that made all the designs. And that my friend, the landscape architect, he just had to follow. And I thought, well, what, what a, a great tradition, right, to, to be able to, to have to be you know, 70 before you can actually actually build something that's yours. So that's such an arcane, um, uh, refined way of doing landscape architecture that's not known anywhere else in the world that I know of. So that that's why I'm so in, inhibited by by the, the Japanese temples and temple and gardens. Can you think of an example of a temple or um, some landscape architecture that really caught your attention when you were there? Um, now my favorite is the temple of the golden, actually the golden temple. Everyone knows that one. And there's a bridge there and it has on the, both sides of the bridge moss that's been growing probably for 400 years, but the moss is about six inches thick. And that is the railing. And I thought that, you know, such a simple, simple detail, but so beautiful. But again, it takes time. Like everything in Japan takes time. And that's what we don't have in today's society. We want everything now, now, now. Which is the oh. complete antithesis of what Japan is about. <laughs> exactly. Is there a lesser known, maybe more secret spot that you know of in Kyoto? Yeah. The place that I, I love the most is a little tiny ryokan. And it's up the river on in the west southwest of the, the Kyoto Valley. It's called Hoshinoya. And from Hoshinoya, if you walk, if you walk to the north, there is, and it's just part of the public trail, but there is a very beautiful bamboo forest. And it's been there for, for umpteen years. It's been there for hundreds of years. And, and it's that little tiny hundred meter stretch of, of forest that is this um, paradise in the middle of the Kyoto. I think that's probably my favorite place. Would you say the Hoshinoya there would be your go-to tip for where to stay? Absolutely. There's, there's only 17 uh, rooms there and they're all different and they, they are not cheap, but wonderful food. Love that place. Yeah, I've stayed at the Hoshinoya Tokyo, which is that modern ryokan in the middle of, of Tokyo. And also they've got a beautiful property near Mount Fuji, which has got this glamping experience that I, mm -hmm. I love as well. But yeah, that's a great, the design with Hoshinoya is always amazing, isn't it? It is. The, yeah, I stayed in the property and uh, 
Kyoto or in uh, Tokyo also. Beautiful. Really recommend it as well. You've traveled so many different places in the world. I mean, you're one of the most well-traveled people one could possibly meet. What's your hidden gem? Like, have you got a, a place that people might not have considered venturing, but they really ought to? That's a very good question. I loved a place called Antigua. Now, that's different than the island of Antigua. There's a beautiful little mountain town in uh, Guatemala. And we went there just the end of last year. And it's, it's high in the mountains. And we were so lucky that we went there on Sunday, Easter Sunday. And again, it's a place where people use their hands, in this case, to make textiles. And the textiles were amazing of embroideries, just so beautifully colorful. We bought two, we filled up two full suitcases of, of, of textiles. And that during that weekend, what they did in this mountainous town is that they took all of the cobblestone streets that had been there since the Spanish, 200 years old, and they filled up every single square inch. All of the streets are carpeted with floral patterns. And then on Sunday, on actual Easter Sunday, they'll take a, a huge parade. They'll parade the dead. And it's uh, uh, everybody wears black. Everybody um, is waving these, these um, how to say, these incense pots. So the entire town is, is filled with smoke, beautiful smelling smoke, and almost to the point of choking. It's so dense, but then there'll be something like 500 people that will, that will march in silence with these effigies of Jesus Christ. And everyone has their own version of what Jesus Christ looked like. It's just it's wonderful. And they march through the town over these, over these uh, cobblestone streets filled with floral petals. And very, very few visitors ever get there. And I, was, I felt so special to be part of that ceremony. What an extraordinary experience. Wow. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're obviously so drawn to textiles, ceramics, you know, the artistry of people making these things around the world. Many of your hotels feature pieces that you've handpicked or sourced from your own travels, whether it's in the souks or bazaars, flea markets or antique fairs. You're a self-described incurable collector, I believe. And to the point where it's almost like the properties that you build are like a museum and you've curated the museum of pieces. What's your all-time favorite market for sourcing these treasures? Um, the Newark, the Newark market in uh, near Lincoln in the middle of England, in the Midlands. Okay. There's a, there's a Newark, there's an old RAF um, air, airfield and four times a year, something like 2,000 or 3,000 dealers come from all over England and all over Europe. And they'll set up these big stalls on, on the grass. There's 3,000 different dealers to work with. So even before people are taking, putting things down onto the lawn, I'm there and looking inside of the truck to seeing what they have. Uh, what I do is I cherry pick. And when I buy something for 100 pounds, it goes to my client for 100 pounds. It's not something that I do for profit, but I do it because, number one, it makes for a great hotel in the end, but also I believe very much so in recycling and upusing and, um, and, and to have a five-star hotel like our Capella Ubud, which is all a lot of recycled furniture, you don't have to build everything brand new. I think that's, that's not our future is to build, to build everything brand new. It's about reusing and renovating. 
and it's a hell of a lot more work, but it's for me, it's a great deal of fun. Mm. Oh, Bill, that sounds so good. And um, so anyone can go and do that. It's not just people with a special pass. Like a traveler can just go and rock up there and source some of the treasures. The it, That particular fair is open at nine o'clock to the public. If Bill Bensley has been there, there might, there might not be much left. <laughs> yeah. I got all the good stuff, but so yeah. check Bill's schedule before you plan to go because yeah. <laughs> and Bill what's your I mean you, you've obviously just collected so much because all of your hotels have these treasures but have you got a souvenir that you just really it just has like a beautiful story behind it or that is is your most treasured souvenir I do I have this 1920s um Vietnamese hat and why is it special because it's covered with a white and pink polka dot fabric. So it's very much, how to say, has an art deco feel to it. And why that is special to me is that that triggered an idea for an M Gallery that we finished just last year, an M Gallery hotel that's in the mountains of Sapa, which is in North Vietnam, uh, next to the Chinese border near the Fransipan Mountain, the highest mountain in Southeast Asia. And the idea behind that one particular hat that I bought at the flea market in uh, North Paris, the idea of it being a rattan Vietnamese hat. So it came from that area of Sapa where they weave Sapa, but it also was influenced by the French uh, haute couture. So that I thought to myself, well, what if we made the entire hotel in that way, where it's where you combine things that are Vietnamese that are hill tribe but also every single item also has a French uh, French influence to it. That really taps into what we've been talking about, about how uh, your travels inspire you creatively. And I'm really glad that you brought up Sapa because that's such a stunning mountainous region in northern Vietnam. Say someone was to go and stay at the hotel you designed, what's there to do and see there? There are seven different hill tribes that still live in these um in this mountainous region it's a huge mountainous region that has no that has very little roads now so the big thing to do there is to trek um to see the and to see how the hill tribe people are living and like in bali they grow rice on terraces that that fall down very steeply down the sides of mountains so that they've created um in harmony with with Mother Nature, they've created some very beautiful agrarian landscapes. So that's, I think that would probably be the number one thing to do there, is trekking through the mountains. Oh, just spending a few days trekking the cascading rice paddies would be such a wonderful getaway. And Bill, you've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. I mean, you live there, you know it really, really well. Is there a place that sticks out for you? I would highly recommend my favorite village in all of Southeast Asia, Luang Prabang. In, in Laos. Uh, it's a UNESCO site on the river there, on a confluence of two rivers, in fact. And the reason that I would suggest to go there is to stay in a very special hotel, the Rosewood. We finished this about a year and a half ago, and it's won the Kananas Best Hotel in Asia Award. And the reason I like it, this particular hotel, is that it's a, it's a time capsule of a hotel. Uh, we worked with an existing property. And in fact, that property belonged to Auguste Pavi. And Auguste Pavi was yet from the year 
1890 to about 1910, he was the governor of Luang Prabang and uh, the French governor for that part of the region. And he had actually walked all the way from Angkor Wat, barefoot for the most part, barefoot on an expedition to, uh, to Luang Prabang, which took him about eight months. He did that on the expedition of the, the French expedition of 1886. Mm. And Luang Prabang itself is such a gem. I went there 10 or 12 years ago, I think. And because it's this UNESCO heritage site, it certainly feels like you've you've stepped back in time. And I remember getting up really early for sunrise to give alms to the monks, you know, the sticky rice and the fresh fruit and the monks walking past in this slow procession of saffron-coloured robes. And it was just so atmospheric. And I'm wondering... What would you suggest for a traveler to do when they visit that part of the world? There are, on that peninsula, there are something like seven main temples. And those temples are Buddhist temples, but they're also the finest examples of what I think, even though I live in Thailand for 35 years, it's the finest examples of Buddhist architecture. So I would put that as number one. Number two, I would go to the north, I take a boat, a long-tailed boat, and I would go up to the Pakyai Caves. And that is a wonderful, has a huge collection, something like 2,000, 3,000 uh, wooden Buddhas. But the wooden Buddhas are made by farmers. So they're all very primitive in nature. And I, for me personally, I find that the primitive uh, Buddhist art is far more enjoyable than even the finest examples of, of Radhakosin uh, Buddhas in, in Thailand that, that are considered to be refined. So I think I would put that as number two. And then also on the main streets, number three, um, try the watercress soup. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's, it's grown in the, grown in the Mekong. Uh, the watercress soup, they, they make it every day. There's many places that make it. It's the only place I've ever had it. And it is delicious. What does it taste like? What can um, we expect? I, you know, it's a little bit like basil, um, has the, the texture of morning glory, if mm-hmm. you've ever eaten that, yeah. Um, it is very strong in, in its uh, organic uh, earthiness. Actually, that brings me onto a question that I um, I wanted to ask you. I have this idea of you as someone who would host a really amazing dinner party and be quite the entertainer because you are a storyteller. Is there a travel story that you think would make for a really good dinner party conversation? Um, let's see. Ah, I know, I know, I know. Last year, when I turned 50, uh, I, we went to South America for three months and we went all over. And one of the most interesting places in South America, uh, just to south of Lima, Lima, Peru. Peru is the best, the, the best country. Uh, it was a place called, um, I forgot the name of the desert now, but that's where the Nazca Lines appear. And they are a, a series of drawings that can actually be seen from outer space. There's a series of drawings that nobody knows quite how they got there or why they're there. But I hired a little tiny plane, me and Chirichai, and this uh, Brazilian couple. And it was a, it was a, just a bucket of bolts with a, a propeller tied to the front of it. Oh, how scary. And, <laughs> and we pulled out 
And we pulled out and immediately, it was right on the coast and immediately big winds and we're up and down and up and down and up and down. Uh, and the Brazilian couple behind us started to puke, started to throw up. <laughs> and there was throw up on the ceiling, on the floor, on the, and there was just one, there was one, t one seat. So uh, and I, I've got this big, long lens and I'm, you know, Chiritai's got me by the belt and I'm hanging out one window. I'm loving it. I just, I just love them a great, you know, raucous ride. But when the, when the, the barf comes uh, falling on top of me from the ceiling, that sort of put a damper on things, but I got some wonderful shots of, of the monkeys and the big, and the big peacocks that are all drawn on the sand. And these are drawing something like to the tune of 200 meters long. And, and then we landed uh, to the South of the Nazca lines and that, and then the fun didn't stop. We've got onto this, uh, this sand dune and the, in the plane, uh, we cleaned it all off, but we had these boards, these big, uh, these big wooden boards so we could, you know, we had goggles and we took the boards and we slid down this, um, these sand dunes. That was so much fun. And we'd climb back up and slide back down again and then get back on the plane. And then we, then we flew back to Lima. That was one hell of a great day. That sounds uh, equally disgusting and spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Brazilian couple, they didn't enjoy it nearly as much as Chirichai and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm certain they didn't. Now, before we wrap up, where are you dreaming of escaping to next? I would love to go to Tulum, Mexico. I, we go to Mexico quite frequently. I've never been to Tulum. And it is part of the, there's one particular Mayan temple there. I love seeing the temples and the old architecture of the ancient civilizations of Central America. But Tulum is, is in particular a hotel called Azulik. I want to go and stay there. It's, it's an IG Instagram sensation. So, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my bucket list for the next month. Ah, well, I, um, I, I hope that you do get over there and I can imagine you sort of sitting back and having your margaritas. Bill, it's been, <laughs> it's been an utter delight chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your wild and whimsical adventures with us. I can't wait to see what exotic hotels you dream up next. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you too. That was world-renowned architect Bill Bensley. I hope you found his adventurous anecdotes as fun and as fascinating as I did. After our conversation, a visit to his award-winning Shintamani Wild in Cambodia is high on my wish list. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at escape artist podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.